Welcome, people all around the world, and uh, thank you for once again joining us for another interesting talk. Um, this week, we're very happy to have Brenton Sullivan joining us, who is the author of his latest book, Building a Religious Empire, um, Tibetan Buddhism, Bureaucracy, and the Rise of the Gelugpa, fresh off the press. And it is a continuation, I think, of his uh, doctoral thesis, which already dealt with a very important um, monastery in Andor. And he um, mixed up a lot of uh, various disciplines. So there's going to be um, fieldwork notes, there's going to be proper philology, there's going to be uh, diplomatic studies. And he will first off introduce uh, the general outline of his book and then delve into the third chapter, which um, deals with the institutionalization of Tantra. Brenton is currently an assistant professor of Buddhism and East Asian religions at Colgate University and was recently awarded a Fulbright Scholar Award to commence his research on a new project, which is going to be the sort of precursor to uh, his latest book focusing on the pre-Gandan project period. And um, without further ado, Brenton, welcome. Thank you very much. And thank you, Daniel, for inviting me. And thank you to the, the Tibetan Graduate Studies Seminar for having me. I made the mistake just now of looking through the people present and uh, am now uh, deeply, uh, not deeply, but somewhat anxious because of the impressive roster of uh, established scholars, published scholars, as well as talking to a no doubt impressive group of Oxford graduate students. So, but it's also flattering and it does make, make this whole job of, of learning about Tibet and researching the history of Tibet um, seem more worthwhile to be able to share it with others. So I really look forward to your feedback on this. Um, as Daniel just said, I am mixing a lot of methodologies. And I, I think I do that quite consciously, but I suppose that's also my weakness. And so I'm not an expert in Tantra. I've been, I have a fledgling interest in understanding it as practitioners understand it. Understand it and I'm doing my best to, uh, to do that. But the approach I take is somewhat different as, as you'll see. So, as Daniel mentioned, uh, my, my talk is based somewhat on my recent, well, based very much on my recent book, Building a Religious Empire, Tibetan Buddhism, Bureaucracy, and the Rise of the Galupa. Uh, but it's also based on a trip I took in 2016 uh, from Pohat to Alashan and from there up onto the Tibetan Plateau to Xining. I traveled this route with a scholar in Inner Mongolia named Qin Shichin, who really did a lot of the work in opening doors for me there at Alashan. He himself is a, um, a student of the late Jalasan Rinpoche, um, and Qin Shichin has written about the history of this monastery. So together we've been working on a perhaps an article it's still very much in the works, but I'll talk a little bit about that near the end of my talk today. So that my talk today is um, 
I, I should kind of lay some general parameters before diving into the specific topic of a uh, the, the domestication of Tantra, as I've titled my talk today. My sustained academic interest has always been on institutions and institution building. So as a graduate student, for instance, and as a postdoc, I was drawn to such thinkers as Max Weber, Robert Bella, Amitai Etzioni. These are thinkers who, as I see it, see beyond the individual and also see through the hoary gauze of ideology to the inner workings of groups, of communities, of societies and institutions. More recently, Ben Schoenthal at Otago University, who has himself written about Sanala monastic constitutions or Katikabatas for Buddhism in Sri Lanka, uh, has brought to my attention an article published recently in the Journal of the American Academy of Religion by a group of scholars who study uh, Japanese religion and Japanese Buddhism. The title here, Why Scholars of Religion Must Investigate the Corporate Form. The article prevent, presents a manifesto, and it calls scholars to take seriously the corporate form, meaning the variety of ways in which people have collectivized and created organizations that are seen as larger than any one individual and also seen to outlive the life of any individual. They argue that, that much attention has been given to religious doctrine, to values, to ritual even, to ritual specialists, to laity. But the corporate form is what embodies all of these and often goes unnoticed and unexplored. They further argue that the corporate form allows us to see where many of these different aspects of religion most intersect. They say the corporate, the corporation, the corporate form, the institution is where individual subjects are made. It's where their values and habits are stamped upon them. It's where individuals contend over the purpose of their organization and there determine its values and mission. I have a few quotes from that article. Uh, one is the corporate form, these corporations, they traverse and erode the artificial division of public and private on which many conceptions of religion depend. And by this, I, I, I take it that they mean that the study of the corporation, of the institution, of the organization, by default calls us to question some of the categories we create as scholars, such as religion and secular, or religious and political. Their manifesto caught my attention because I spent the better part of the last decade studying Buddhist monasteries on the, pla on the plateau, on the Tibetan plateau. They argue further that corporations make demands on all segments of society. And so they, by studying the corporate form, it presents some of the most important features of any society. When people, I quote here from their article, when people organize collective enterprises, however informal or illegal, they need to negotiate their degrees of responsibility and goals of growth vis-a-vis -vis formal members, external stakeholders, and societal expectations. So all of society gets roped into the corporate form. Finally, they urge scholars of religion to pay attention in particular to some of the following. And here I have three points from their article. One is how religious organizations emphasize their contribution to the public good and work to strike a balance between their shareholders who make up the organization and stakeholders from society at large 
have something to gain or lose by the organization's existence and endeavors. I call this the what's good for General Motors is good for the country. This is a quote from a former CEO of General Motors uh, from the 80s, I believe. Next, from again, a point from their article that I think uh, reflects my own interest in the study of institutions is how the organization regularly presents itself as an entity that can and must endure forever while presenting individual members as fungible and in the service of the organization's larger mission. And thirdly, how religious organizations require intricate systems of management to resolve internal tensions and disputes, to maintain harmony, and to maintain a positive public image, among other things. And so what I, what I focus on in this in particular, in this point, is the intricacy of these organizations, of these institutions, and also their role in helping to maintain and promote a positive public image of the organization. So uh, all this has been rather theoretical and abstract, so let me try to connect some of it up with my own work on the history of Tibetan Buddhist monasteries. The, the argument of my book can be summarized pretty easily. Uh, the history of religion and it, it, on the Tibetan plateau over the past 400 years has been the history of the Geluk school. How that school came to power is often explained as having made very strategic alliances with martial and wealthy inter-Asian powers. First the Oirat, and then later the Manchu Qing. And I don't argue with any of that. But I, I do argue that that's not the complete story, that the complete story must take account of what, what these uh, Geluk, what the Geluk school did and what its advocates, the Geluk Lamas, did once they secured that patronage. And the answer, as far as I'm concerned, is bureaucracy. That is, they legislated and administered a far-flung bureaucracy. So bureaucracy for, for me is the key word in the book's title. It, it's in the subtitle, but I, I had originally had it in the title. I think the editors didn't find it sold very well, and so they, uh, they put it in the subtitle. Uh, but it, for me, it's the key word. Bureaucracy calls to mind, of course, writing, record-keeping, standardization, right? These are some of the hallmarks of bureaucracy. Max Weber called it the most rationalized known means of exercising authority over human beings, by which he meant a system that attempts to maximize predictability through standardizing action, through codified, codified laws and practices. In naming bureaucracy as the key to understanding the rise of the Gaelic school, I am suggesting that it is best understood alongside states and state making and the practices of state making such as um, such as standardization record keeping organizing uh, concentrating manpower in urban cores uh, conscription of males and so forth unfortunately some of the best records for looking at all of those aspects of institution building like say conscription um, requires archives, and many of those are still unavailable to us. They're housed and secreted away in the Potala Palace or in some major monasteries on the plateau. So instead, I've made use of, principal use of a genre of text known as Jaik, or monastic constitutions, to better understand how Geluk leaders legislated and administrated life 
in these monasteries. So that means my attention has been drawn to the subject matter of these texts, of these monastic constitutions. Here's some examples of what these monastic constitutions look like. This is the first one I ever looked like at, looked at very short. Um, then they get much longer at times. So you will find them on brocades like this, uh, rolled up and usually held onto by the highest officers in the monastery, either the abbot or the disciplinarian. And then what, more often one has access to them as, the, as a scholar in the form of block prints, which you see in the lower image here. And many of these have been uh, published in the Sungbum or collected works of Gelugwamas. So the subject matter of these constitutions um, covers a whole range of things, but the ones that I see most common occurring are these, discipline and individual comportment, delineating administrative offices and roles within the monastery, codifying compensation and salaries, designating responsible parties for financing the upkeep of the monastery, creating a calendar of ritual activities to be carried out hourly, daily, monthly, and annually, designating a curriculum, curricula of study, complete with protocols for debate, examinations, and the awarding of degrees, creating a schedule and protocols for the proper execution of collective tantric rites, and more. And you can guess that my focus today uh, is on the, the, the last of these, uh, the schedule and protocols for the proper execution of collective tantric rites. And when I said earlier that my methodology is mixed, um, and, and that I'm not a specialist in tantra, part of the reason for that is because in looking through these, these monastic constitutions, they call upon a, a wide variety, a range of different um, specializations in, say, scholasticism and, and Tibetan Gelug philosophy, in uh, Vinaya and discipline, in uh, Tantra, among other things. But again, today my focus is on the latter of these. Uh, I don't claim that the Gelugpa ruled by bureaucratic authority alone. Clearly, they had recourse to charisma and tradition too. And I also am not claiming that other schools of Tibetan Buddhism did not exercise similar tendencies toward legislation and administration. In fact, the most, most obvious example of a non-Geluk school that did uh, have these tendencies towards legislation and administration is the Karmakagyu school. Uh, most of the subjects, these subjects here before you, that you find in a Geluk constitution can be found in karma constitu uh, kagyu constitutions as well. Um, and notably, they're often earlier. So we're talking in the case of the Karmakagyu constitutions about the 16th century. However, the, the topics here are often scattered piecemeal across the various Karmakagyu constitutions rather than being found within a, an entire constitution um, for organizing and administrating a large-scale monastery. The major takeaway also is this. Uh, earlier, non-Gelu constitutions tend to have these characteristics in general. Uh, they're mostly composed for retreats or hermitages, and therefore focused on maintaining the boundaries, the sima of the retreat, or tsam in Tibetan. Uh, they're focused, therefore, on having few possessions, the importance of meditation, they are guru-centric. They're focused on the Lama, who is the founder of that retreat site. 
There is also then a greater emphasis on the commitments, the Samaya that bind the Atantric family together. Um, and they're often written by a prelate for his own monastery. And that's also a significant difference because when we look at later Gelug constitutions, beginning especially in the 1640s and then continuing on from there, we see instead concerted attempts to codify these arrangements that I, many of which I've already, um, I've already referenced, curricula, tantric rituals, liturgy, um, administrative offices and responsibilities, and many, many other things. There's a greater emphasis on the importance of impartiality amongst officers. They may make explicit reference to other more centrally located monasteries, thereby creating networks of relationship between institutions. And finally, they're often composed for monasteries far away by lamas that do not necessarily have any direct relationship with that institution. So they're not necessarily the founders of that institution or, ha or have any sort of ownership. They're not gundak proprietors or anything of that monastery. And so what they're doing are creating uh, guidelines for the running of a monastery in the absence of a lama, of a guru, guru's presence, right? Instead, they emphasize and strengthen the, the institutional protocols, right? And this is the hallmark of bureaucracy. So if we return to some of these points I drew from that Journal of the American Academy of Religion article about the corporate form, um, they are you know, how religious organizations, without, that we should be paying attention to how organizations emphasize their contribution to the public good, how organizations regularly present themselves or the organization regularly presents itself as an entity that can and must endure forever while presenting the individual members as fungible, and how organizations require intricate systems of management to, among other things, maintain a positive public image, well, then we might think of, for instance, um, this line that appears in many Gelug monastic institutions. Uh, and this one is taken from Dzongkaba's monastic constitution for the general Sangha. As it is said in the entrance to the way of the Bodhisattva, this is Shantideva's Bodhicharya Vatara, the sole medicine for the suffering of wandering beings, the source for all happiness, may the teachings abide long with support and honor. And when this appears in, in Dzongkaba's constitution, as it does in later Gelug constitutions, is often followed by this as well. This is a paraphrase taken from the Abhidharma Kosha. That that is the teachings are twofold. As for all the teachings of scripture, they are found with certainty in the three collections, the Tripitaka. And as for the teachings of practice, they are the three categories of precious trainings. There, moreover, as for the training of discipline, it is the support of the, it is the support of the other two. It's the support of the growth, stability, and flourishing of the other two trainings. The Buddha spoke thus, on more than one occasion. Therefore, here, most importantly, we begin from the training of discipline. So doing, one must speak about some of the rules that will serve to purify the behavior of those who reside in our monasteries. So what we get from this is an emphasis on uh, an argument being made that Buddhism as a whole depends upon the well-running of these monasteries and that these constitutions are required for that. Sometimes you see 
even more um, grandiose claims such as this one. The happiness of society depends upon the teachings of the Buddha, and the teachings depend upon centers of the Sangha. Those, moreover, depend upon the firm establishment of order. Even if there is a large Sangha without order, it is of no benefit other than causing great destruction to the teachings. When I say grandiose, it's not really the right word here, but what I'm referring to here is this the, the happiness of society that depending on the teachings of the Buddha, that that's the added element here, that, that, that all of society, that, that's actually already present in this earlier example, right? That the sole medicine for the suffering of all wandering beings, that is dependent upon what? It's depending upon the teachings. The teachings depend upon what? They depend upon discipline and order. And where does discipline and order come from? It comes from the proper running of monasteries. So we might think of some of these things, or we might note how, um, how the offices within a monastery are, are said to transcend the prerogatives of any individual who might be inhabiting that office at a time. Um, so back to this earlier point then, um, how an organization regularly presents itself as an entity that can and must endure forever while presenting individual members as fungible, like one example of this is the disciplinarian. He, the office is given precedence over the disciplinarian himself. And there are various rules about how the discipline, the individual occupant in that office must uh, abide by, um, lest the office itself suffer. Again, a hallmark of bureaucracy. Um, or we might think of, um, let's see, is this the quote I was looking for? Right, so this has to do with favoritism, um, but it also has to do with um, has to do with the positive public image of a monastery. Here's a quote taken from a constitution written for Dawang Monastery. Um, Given that this monastery was newly established as the field for receiving offerings for all in this region, the officers must be universally upright, not succumbing to one's personal favorites or partiality. This point was made early on, incidentally, by Tara Ellingson in one of the first English language articles on Jaik, on monastic constitutions, and he wrote, the principle underlying such requirements of aesthetics and religions in religious practice is that the life of the monastic community should embody a julam zepa, or a beautiful path of practice. And, th and this is tied to the importance of appearing morally upright in the eyes of laity and potential patrons. So um, this speaks to that earlier point about um, the intricacy of, the, of corporations and how that intricate management is, do, what, what it does, among other things, is help to promote and advocate the, the, the positive public image of the corporation itself. Now, Tantra does not escape the attention of Gaelic authors of constitutions. It too is institutionalized, that, that's my argument. I think Tantra naturally lends itself to an, an analysis of transmission. After all, the heart of Tantra is uh, the guru-disciple relationship and the unbroken chain of transmission of tantric teachings. However, when we think of Tantra, I think we often think first and foremost of the individual benefits of Tantra and the intrepid practitioner who seeks out his or her guru to seek transmission. For example, um, the first Jamyang Shepa 
and the second Jiangjiahutuktu, both from Amdo, traveled to Zhang in central Tibet, western central Tibet, where they sought out initiation and training in the Se tradition of the tantric generation and completion stages of the deity Guhya Samaja. The figure they, that ultimately gave them transmission was known as, is known as Gunchok Yarpel. He was over 80 years old when they approached him and he had previously not found anybody suitable to whom he could bequeath these teachings on Gyuha Samaja. Um, but then he did ultimately in 1680, give these teachings to the first Jamyang Shepa in 1681 to Jiangjia. Afterwards, both, both Jamyang Shepa and and the uh, Jiangjia Hutukto both had a, I think, a very um, understandable response. They wanted to go off and meditate and practice. And when they told this to one of the disciples of the late Panchen Lama, there was, they were immediately reprimanded and told this, are you going to throw away the teachings of the victor Zonkaba? Are you able to independently go your own way? This is not fitting for great scholars who desire to maintain the correct philosophical viewpoint such as yourselves. In other words, they were told to go back and build institutions and teach others. Um, so when we think of Tantra, we often think of this kind of sort of individual, though, trekking out to find the teacher and uh, meditating on that. Or we might think of Tantra in legitimizing political power. We might think, of course, of the Chuyun relationship between political donor and religious donee. But I think we often lose sight of the more fundamental role that Tantra has played in institutions, in legitimizing monastic institutions, and in inter-sectarian warfare. So here I'm thinking, among other things, of an episode that occurred in 1611, when the Panchen Lama requests tantric rites, such as the 60 ritual cake offerings of Ajabhairava, to be performed by Geluk monks in their war with Zhang and the Karmapa school. I'm also thinking of, and I recognize that he's in the audience today, uh, so hopefully I'm not misquoting or misrepresenting. Um, I'm thinking of Martin Mill's work and how in that, that very complex work, among other things, he argues for the essential nature of the Tantric Lama at the monastery. Mon there is no monastery just for monks. There can't be. Because among other things, they play a foundational role in... Um, in the most important tantric rituals at the monastery, such as the rituals focused on the, the principal protectors of the monastery. Um, I would add then too, that of course, no monastery, well, I don't know, no monastery, but arguably most monasteries, all monasteries, I don't know, I'd like to hear what others think, have a founding myth involving uh, the tantric taming of local spirits. And, and I'm sure you all can list off several examples. Here are three um, that, that came to me as I was preparing for this this morning. Uh, one is at Gunlung Monastery in Amdo, and we read in the chronicle or history of that monastery how a tantric adept who erected a statue of the Lord of Secrets, Vajrapani, and afterwards the dreadful gods and spirits of this place were all tamed in particular in a black well beneath what appeared like the genitals of a rock ogress lived a pernicious serpent spirit. It was only after that, of course, that Gunlun could be founded. I think too of another monastery with which I'm most familiar, having spent most of my time in Amdo, of uh, Chortentong, which is a monastery 
in modern-day Gansu province in the region known as Huari or Bari in Amdo, where Rope Dorje came through in the early 14th century, taming lots of noxious serpent spirits along the way. In this case, he is said to have also established 108 stupas, whereby he gave the monastery its current name, Chortentang. Um, I think also of another small temple retreat, actually, in this same region, known as uh, Chisong Ritu. And here, Rope Dorje, again, Garma Rope Dorje is said to have come through, tamed a local noxious spirit, and defeated it with by throwing this particular red sor at it. And, there, and then on the right, we have the meditation cave where he is said to have meditated. So there's lots of these myths um, about, that, that signal the really essential nature of the tantric adept, of the lama at a monastery. I'd also add that, um, to go back to Martin Mill's book, again, his particular case study in that book of a certain Gumbu monastery in Ladakh demonstrates the pattern of high-ranking lamas coming from more centrally located monasteries, usually and often in Lhasa, to more remote peripheral ones to officiate over tantric rites. And that this leads to uh, official and unofficial root branch relationships. And more importantly, it ensured a level of ritual orthopraxy and consistency across very vast dense distances. All of these examples, um, I think, all of, the, all of these examples, I think, push us, encourage us to think about Tantra, not just as an individual pursuit, not just as in its relationship with um, quote unquote secular political powers, but also in its institutional setting and then specifically in monasteries. Of course, the Gelukpa did not invent the association between Tantra and monasteries. So returning to the title of my talk today, the Geluk domestication of Tantra, uh, what is it that the Geluk did uniquely? And my answer focuses on two historical phenomena, the establishment of tantric colleges, Gupadatsang, and the movement across the plateau of very prolific lamas. And then in analyzing those historical phenomena, I think there are two observations that can be made. One is that what we see is the establishment of institutions that are specializing in the study and practice of Tantra, among other things. And this specialization is a hallmark of bureaucracy. And two, the standardization of Tantric study and practice, What an observation we can make and draw is that what we see is the standardization of Tantric study and practice across Tibet and Mongolia. So there's consistency being formed across, again, very vast distances. Now, this wasn't done exclusively or even primarily through Jaik or monastic constitutions. Um, for instance, uh, to go back to Zhangja uh, Kutuktu, who I was just talking about a moment ago, how he sought out the, the Sei tradition of tantric practices on Guhya Samaja and um, wanted to then go and re into retreat and meditate, but it was reprimanded and sent back. Well, afterwards, not surprisingly, he wrote a, a tract uh, uh, on the practices of, the, of these practices that he has since learned. And these, of course, are one of the primary ways by which uh, Tantra and its orthopraxy would be disseminated. Likewise, we see here in the case of uh, the third Tuguan, Losan Chuginima, he wrote for his home monastery of Gunlung in Amdo, 
this track, the manner for offering the day, day torma or the setor to Holtenlamo, the glorious goddess. And in that particular track, he, he attempts to, he claims to be uh, correcting misunderstandings about vocabulary, ritual substances, and various other omissions and errors that monks at his home monastery were making. Tuguan goes on to claim further that his ritual manual is an unmodified presentation of the ritual that was introduced to the monastery by its founder in the early 17th century, and that that itself was a practice laid down earlier by the second and third top Dalai Lamas. So again, what we see is there are various means by which ritual orthopraxy is established, and these connections, these networks between institutions are drawn. But the Jaik give us a bird's eye view of how this took place. Um, and they, they, they give us a bird's eye view of it and they, they do so um, in, with a focus on the institution, centering the institution. These constitutions are for institutions, unlike say the ritual manuals here, which are not necessarily specific, they can be, but they're not necessarily specific to an institutional context. So as for these constitutions, um, I've seen very few that deal with, let me back up for a second. I, I, I've seen very few that deal with tantric colleges. In fact, there's only one I've been able to see and read, and that's the seventh Dalai Lama's monastic constitution for Gumbu Monastery in Amdo. It's likely there are more, but that they're just kept in secret. For instance, it's said that the founder of Gunlong's, monast uh, Gunlong's tantric college, who is the uh, Jamyang Shepa, the first Jamyang Shepa from Lebrong Monastery, that he delivered a disciplinary sermon, a uh, tsikdam, for the newly established Tantra College. And then later, that was re required to be memorized by monks enrolled in that college. So the tsikdam, incidentally, um, this disciplinary sermons, disciplinary sermons are often delivered based on jaik. And so uh, whatever it is this tzikdam was or is and that, that monks were required to memorize was all, very likely like a constitution. Unfortunately, again, I haven't been able to see it. So where did the impetus for this institutionalization and standardization via constitutions come from? Well, like so many other things, it starts with the great fifth Dalai Lama. Um, he was the most prolific author of monastic constitutions, second only to the second Jamyang Shepa from Amdo. His two constitutions for Chukor Jil Monastery in Southern Tibet, I think illustrate the degree to which he went to specify specialized places and specialized times for the performance of Tantra. Now, Chukor Jil, it's a, it's a, excuse me, it's an exceptional monastery um, since it was founded by the second Dalai Lama and therefore is recognized as the personal monastery of the Dalai Lamas. But it, it can nonetheless really illustrate um, the organizing and codifying intentions behind the fifth Dalai Lama's composition. So he actually wrote two, two monastic constitutions for Chukur Jel, one in 1645 and another six years later in 1651. 
not coincidentally, in the intervening years, the Dalai Lama had composed a ritual manual for invoking the protectors of the monastery. And for this, um, I'm very, um, very much depend upon the work of, um, of Chris Bell, among others, for drawing my attention to some of the best sources for understanding that history. So he had composed a ritual manual for invoking the protectors of the monastery. And so the second constitution is meant to direct its reader and the residents of Chukorjel to follow his, the Dalai Lama's ritual program. What is this? This is a pretty lengthy text. And I, so I've only taken out uh, two passages. One I, I quote and the next is just a paraphrase. Um, here's one quote taken from this second monastic constitution directing the reader, directing the residents of Chikorjel to follow his ritual tantric program. Maintain the detailed schedule of ritual text to be memorized. The ancient restoration ritual manuals from before for three-headed Mahakala by Shravana and the Maksorma glorious goddess called Tenhamu, together with the newly compiled manuals for restoration rituals, ritual cake offerings, praises and exhortations for Panjara Mahakala and four-faced Mahakala and their two messengers, Putra and Bexi. Later in this same constitution, he specifies the specific dates and groves or places for the periodic and monthly rituals dedicated to Geluk protector deities. So Bexe, for instance, is worshiped in, in the cool grove on the fifth of each month. Panjara Mahakala and the four-faced Mahakala are worshiped in the cool grove on the eighth and 23rd of each month. The Maksura glorious goddess is worshiped at the goddess palace on the 15th and 25th of each month. The four-arm Mahakala and several others are, in, are worshiped at the protector palace on the 9th and 19th of each month and so on. Now the Dalai Lama, I, I mentioned, he, he was the most prolific author of monastic constitutions uh, up until the 18th century. And he wrote many for monasteries across the plateau. For instance, he wrote one for uh, Ganden Tuktenrapche. Uh, and, and in that particular constitution, he tells us that to take Zonkaba's own charters as one's base. And then he additionally instructs monks to adhere to specific tantric instructions by Zonkaba, by Zonkaba's disciple, by the second Dalai Lama, and by the Dalai Lama's disciple, and to worship uh, and visualize the three principal patron deities of the Geluk school, as well as Bhairochana, Amitayus, and many other gods here. So he instructs, he, he, he is building and disseminating a program focused on the principal architects of the Geluk school, its founder, the Dalai Lamas, those figures' disciples. That same liturgy of tantric rituals, um, including schedules, is then re repeated almost verbatim for the monastic constitution of Litong Monastery in Kham and Ba Ganden Pendenling also in Kham. After the fifth Dalai Lama, others followed suit. So some of these practices are literally carried to other more peripheral monasteries and installed there. So recall my earlier reference to Tuguan Losan Chuginima um, and how he had written a ritual manual 
meant to correct omissions and mistakes in the performance of the Tsetor or Daytorma at his own home monastery of Gunung Champaling. Uh, in that same manual, Tuguan tells us that the monastery's founder in the early 17th century had brought to Gunlong a drawing of the glorious goddess that had been used by generations of the Dalai Lamas, and that it now served as Gunlong's inner sacra, its Nangden. In addition, he writes that the yang or contour tones and music of that rite of the Dei De Torma, the Tsetor at Gunlong, are modeled on those implemented at Chikorjel by the second Dalai Lama, a tradition that itself is said to have spread throughout all of U, Zhang, Do, and Kam. So in some cases, these are literally carried, but these later, the, 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 these ritual programs are literally carried to other places on the periphery, but often too, these Geluk Lamas were composing monastic constitutions of their own. Um, one monastery that I've spent a lot of time studying over the years is Gunung Shampaling. Um, here's an image of its Tantra College. Its Tantra College was founded in 1710, a full century after the monastery itself was founded. Incidentally, when the monastery was founded, it was recognized as two distinct groups, one living a few miles up the valley at a hermitage that was known as the Dupte, the practice group. And then down here was the Sheta, the um, exegesis group. This Tantra College, again, was founded about a century after that time in 1710, and it may have been founded with financial support by, from the Kangxi Emperor. This is actually similar to what Jose Cabezon has written about Sera monasteries. Uh, Tantra College in Lhasa. He says that that Tantra College is the youngest of Sarah's three colleges founded in the early 18th century as the personal ritual college of the ruler of Tibet, Lhasan Kang. So, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I've not seen a constitution or discipline, disciplinary sermon for Gunung's Tantra College here. But we can get a, a sense of what the makeup of that college was like from other historical sources. Recall earlier the story of Jiangjia, the second Jiangjia, going on with Jamyang Shepa to Zhang to seek out the same tradition of Guhya Samaja practice. After these two were reprimanded and returned to Amdo, upon Jiangjia's uh, request, the Jamyang Shepa from Labrang founded Gunung's Tantra College again in 1710 and gave the transmission and exegesis of the four-part commentary on Gusha Samaja, this is a text by Zonkaba, and he gave a black protection cord of the Se lineage Vajra holder to the abbot of Gunlung, to the former abbot of Gunlung, and to other elders at the monastery. And then a former abbot, the former abbot of Gunlung was appointed as the head of the Tantric College. And then another figure was made the ritual head or the Lama Umze of the Tantric College. Now, if we stop and think about what that moment represents, we can say, yes, there's transmission, right? There is this transmission of the say teachings and of Dzongkaba's text, the four-part commentary on Gukha Samaja. But what we don't see is this being exclusively given to quote-unquote heart disciples, right? We don't see, as was the case for Jiangjia and Jamyang when they sought out these teachings in 
Zhang from Gunchok Yardbel. He was 80 on his on death's door, had not yet bequeathed these teachings to anyone. Now instead, we're in an institutional context where the recipients of these teachings are residents in the monastic, in, in the Tantric College. Um, we're, we also see that the figures who receive these black protection cords are not heart disciples, rather they're monastic officers. They are the Lama of the Tantric College, the head, and the Lama Umze, the ritual head of the Tantric College. We also see that, um, we also know that in this Tantra College at Gunlong, a commemoration day, a day two, was established for the founder of the Tantra College, right? So the founder of the college, not of this, say, tradition, but rather of the college himself is elevated to such a point that he has his own commemoration day within the annual calendar of the institution. And then finally, we, we also know that later ritual heads the Lama Umze of the Tantra College were chosen based on a very, very bureaucratic criterion, namely attendance, how often they attended. Now, the one constitution I have seen that, I don't know that I have actually images in these later slides. I ran out of time. Uh, there's one image, a few images, but maybe I can just stop sharing my screen for a moment or two. Um, so yeah, the one constitution for a ritual college that I have seen is uh, the seventh Dalai Lama's Gyubatatsang, uh, the seventh Dalai Lama's constitution for the Gyubatatsang at Gumbum in Amdo. And I think the thing that most jumps out when you do look at that particular monastic college is how similar it is to other monastic co constitutions written for monasteries or philosophical colleges, Senyidatsang. The Tantra College is described as having its own courtyard, its own kitchen, its own, um, its own hall for assembling. It had a full staff of specialized offices and officers, such as the, again, the head of the Tantra College, the Lama, the ritual head, the Lama Umze, the, a disciplinarian, all the way down to the uh, functionaries that blow on the, the conch horn, the Dunken. The constitution specifies an elaborate routine of ritual and worship. It specifies the responsibilities that all these officers and functionaries are to carry out. There's a curriculum complete with the same pedagogical techniques uh, seen in the philosophical colleges. And there's a calendar and specified salaries for the monks enrolled in the college. So in short, the, the tantra in this case is not really something special. It's simply another institutional option within the larger monastic complex. And on that note, I can say too that the Tantra College operated as part of a very orchestrated monastery-wide program that included the other institutions within it. So the Philosophical College, a medical college, Protector's Hall, and so on. So Tantra has become part of the monastery. Tantra also serves to protect the uh, to protect and promote the monastery and the wider Gayluk school in another way. I think this is a, a pretty conspicuous example. If you look at the evening assemblies at monasteries, often referred to as gurim, um, these obstacle clearing assemblies, George Dreyfus has referred to as the main ritual of the day. And this is 
corroborated in the monastic constitutions that I've looked at too, where they say, if you've missed some of the earlier assemblies of the day, you can make it up by going to the evening one. The evening, evening one is the principal monastic constitution of the day. The main function of this assembly appears to be protecting the well-being and integrity of the monastery, as well as the health of the monks. So at Gunlun, when you look at the, the liturgical makeup of that evening assembly, it's filled with apotropaic rites meant to ward off evil, uh, meant to ward off disease and harm, such as the white umbrella, Dukgar, the Tara, the Heart Sutra and its apotropaic recitation, and the fourth Panchalama's um, uh, Sengdoma, the lion-faced one. One finds that exact same liturgy, the, and, and right now I'm, I'm speaking principally about the, as an example, I'm talking about the Gurim, the evening assembly at Gunlung Monastery, but one finds the exact same uh, program of evening assembly at a Mongol monastery in the Sunit banner of Inner Mongolia. And this is not a coincidence, this is because Tuguan, the third Tuguan, Losan Chuginima, wrote a monastic constitution from his home in Gunlung for that Inner Mongolian monastery. So perhaps you've noticed, maybe not, maybe it's confused, but perhaps you've noticed that I've been going in a somewhat chronological order, starting with the uh, fifth Dalai Lama, his monastic constitutions, and moving forward in time to figures like Tuguan Losan Chuginima in the 18th century. And I've also been moving from center to periphery, from Lhasa to Amdo to Inner Mongolia. And this has been my method in researching this book more generally. Uh, first, we know that the Gelug school came to dominate the religious and political landscape beginning in the 17th century and was centered first in Lhasa and from there spread outward, especially into Amdo, Mongolia, and the Manchu Qing court. And second, some of the largest Gelug monasteries were located in Amdo, and those ultimately became centers in their own right, spreading Gelug teachings, Tantra, outward from there. Many of these had extensive properties, estates, satellite temples, and so forth. Gunlung, for example, is said to have had anywhere between 42 and 49 satellite monasteries. Most of them are in the same region where it's located, but some of them are as far away as Xinjiang. And so my methodology has been trying to track down, whenever possible, constitutions or other ritual texts composed by lamas associated with these new peripheral centers, if you will, like Gunlung, written for its branch monasteries or monasteries even farther afield in Mongolia. And I've found several examples of this. So one is the constitution that I just mentioned, that I just alluded to, uh, that Tuguan Losan Chuginima wrote for a monastery in Sunit Banner. Um, and so sometimes identifying these, the, the dissemination of a tantric program is interpretive. In other words, it's looking, literally setting them side by side and just looking at comparing them and seeing um, whether or not they are the same, as was the case with Gunlong's evening assembly and this Inner Mongolian monastery in Sunit Banner, which were entirely the same. In other cases, though, it's just very explicit. Um, for instance, Amdo's Lebrang Monastery, um, its Tantric College was founded in 1716, shortly after it was the monastery itself was founded. And just a couple of years after that, in 1719, the first Jamyang Shepa composed a constitution for his monastery. And in that, he tells us, quote, that, well, he tells us that Tantra is said to be, quote, bound to the tradition 
of contour tones and melodic chants at the glorious lower Tantric College, Gyume, in Lhasa. Gunlung also explicitly said to be modeled on Gyume and Lhasa. Another, the, the Barung Khait, the south monastery in Alashan that I showed an image of at the very outset, that too is said to be modeled on um, Gyume and Lhasa, as well as actually uh, Shalu Monastery. Um, so we see this movement outward, further and further outward. Um, another example is one of Gunlung's branch monasteries. Um, there, the lo a local lama who had trained at Gunlung goes to this branch monastery and establishes the Tsetor, the first day Torma offering to Lamo, quote, like at Gunlung. So again, it's a very explicit reference here that what we see is a mapping, a modeling of more peripheral monasteries on more centrally located ones. The final example I'll give of this movement outwards, this process of standardization and dissemination, actually, you know what, I see we're running short on time. I, I, what I was gonna point to the last example is of Barun Khait, the South Monastery in Alasha. That constitution written by this, uh, the third Jiangjia, so the rebirth of the figure who had gone to Tsang and sought out the Say tradition of tantric teachings. He, sometime after the founding of Barun Khait, so sometime after 1757, composed a monastic constitution for this Mongol monastery in Alasha. Um, and it's a thoroughly tantric constitution. And the main takeaway among many things, there's a very long constitution too, uh, but very explicitly in that constitution, it says that the practices there are to be modeled on the Gyume in Hlasa and uh, Shalu as well. So um, those are th th that's the main methodology I've followed in trying to map out this process of standardizing monastic practices, standardizing monastic administration, and then disseminating it outward so as to build what I somewhat provocatively call in my book title, a Buddhist empire, right? A cohesive, a cohesive uh, Buddhist system. I'll stop there, thank you. Thank you very much, Brenton.